Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In 1989, an unknown writer named Amy Tan published a novel entitled The Joy Luck Club, and the career of a major American writer was born. In this episode, we're reaching deep into the archive to 1991 when we hosted Tan because there's something very special about hearing from a writer at the very beginning of their career. At the time, the Joy Luck Club had been on the New York Times bestseller list for two full years, and the movie of the book was in development with Tan as writer and producer. There was lots of anticipation about what this writer would do next. Of course, Tan has gone on to have an incredible literary career, publishing half a dozen novels, including the bestseller The Bonesetter's Daughter, books for children, nonfiction, and most recently a memoir called Where the Past Begins. In this talk, Tan takes us back through her life to talk about her parents, who immigrated from China in 1949, how Mandarin influenced the way she writes in English, and how she, quote, found her voice by not finding it. She also talks about her early days as a freelancer and novice fiction writer when someone told her, upon hearing the premise of the short story that would become the Joy Luck Club, that, quote, no one wants to read about Chinese mothers. Of course, we now know that millions of readers in 35 countries actually did. Here's Tan from Portland Arts and Lectures from 1991 at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Thank you. Good evening. So it's wonderful to be back here and to have had an opportunity this evening to have dinner with um, both Catherine Dunn and her friend Jim Redden, as well as my Auntie Kwan, who lives here and is one of my mother's longtime and dearest friends. My Auntie Kwan was actually kind enough to send me a newspaper clipping last week, which talked about my coming visit to Portland. And in the article it said, The Joy Luck Club was my first book, et cetera, et cetera, that I was now 40 years old and living in San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera, that I had once lived in Oregon, where I attended Linfield College and met my husband, Lou DiMattei. Well, let me tell you, that article got it all wrong. I am not 40 years old. I am 38. Although it's true, next month I will be 39. And by the Chinese formula, you're always a year older than you really are. So maybe the reporter was just quoting my soon-to-be Chinese age. In any case, when I read that article about how much older I had become, I was reminded how things change after you're published. When my book first came out, the newspaper articles were always making me younger. <laughs> I like that a lot. I also read in the article that some of the people that bought tickets for this event tonight are from book clubs. And that reminded me also of something I had heard recently about a book club in Columbus, Ohio. Apparently, at the end of their discussion period in the public library, a woman stood up and announced in a very authoritative voice, well, I just finished reading her second novel, 
And believe me, it's not nearly as good as the first. Now, I don't know how these rumors get started or what the book the woman thought she read that was mine. And to those of you in book clubs, I just want to tell you that my second book actually does not come out until June of this year. But it is true, I lived in McMinnville, Oregon for one year, just down the road from here. And if it had not been for the fact that I fell in love with a boy who was transferring to San Jose State University, I would have probably lived in Oregon a whole lot longer. Actually, I, I find it rather unnerving to come back to a place where you've once lived. I'm sure there must be at least one person out there in the audience tonight who went to Linfield who knew me 21 years ago and is now telling people, believe me, when I knew her, she was a terrible writer. <laughs> Just terrible. In fact, when I visited Linfield last year, my English professor took great pride in telling all the people in Melrose Chapel that I had received a C-plus my first semester. <laughs> but he made up for it when he reported that by the second semester, I had improved so much, I received an A-minus. When I think about it too much, I also get a bit nervous when I have to speak at events like an arts and lecture series, anything which offers promises of an evening of culture. I don't think of myself as an evening of culture. And my husband, who has spent many a long evening with me, can attest that I am not. But I also have other reasons to be nervous, that I might disappoint someone or that I might make a fool of myself. In fact, just a few months ago in October, I spoke at my first arts and lecture series in my own hometown, San Francisco. During the question and answer period at the end, I fielded a question I had been dreading to get for the past two years. This man stood up, and he said in a very loud voice and with complete seriousness, which 18th century writers most influenced your work? <laughs> he did not say which great writers, leaving it up to me to determine what century we were talking about, and he did not ask for just one example. He asked for me to choose among the many 18th century writers I was surely familiar with that had most influenced my work. Well, perhaps there are a few of you in the audience tonight who could answer such a question. I've been told by many people that Portland is a very literary crowd. And I suppose that one's readers do assume that the author is well-read, has in fact studied all the great writers of the world, beginning with Homer and perhaps in my case with poets of the Song Dynasty, and that one can rattle off with perfect ease the final monologue in James Joyce's Ulysses, which I can't do since I read the book in Cliff Notes. <laughs> it's much shorter, believe me. In my case, I'm the sort of writer who can't say with certainty which Bronte sister wrote Jane Eyre and which wrote Wuthering Heights. Although I know I love them both, Jane Eyre especially. I also could not tell you if Proust was 18th century or 19th century because my remembrance of writers past do not happen to include Proust. I'm not saying all this to boast that I come from a profoundly unliterary background. I do have much respect for the great literature of our ages, include, including that that's being written today. If the truth be known, though, when I was first published and facing the prospect of interviews, I was worried sick that it would be revealed how ignorant I truly was and that therefore I could not be considered a serious literary writer. In fact, this concerned me so much, 
I actually contemplated pulling an act of deception. I thought I would simply read some interviews of respected writers and simply say, yes, it's true. Um, my early influences, why? Mostly Chekhov and Tolstoy, a bit of Flaubert, and of course a smidgen of Kafka. So I sat down one day and I got this used copy of Paris Review interviews at my local bookstore. And in it, I happened to find this excellent interview with Catherine Ann Porter, and I thought, perfect, a woman writer. And when I read what she had to say, well, that's when I realized I was in deep trouble. Because in discussing her mentors, her early influences, she revealed that by the time she was 13 years old, she had read all of Shakespeare's sonnets, not in cliff notes, but the real thing. She had read Voltaire with philosophical notes by Smollett. She had read Ronsard, although not in French, but in translation, and on and on and on. And you have to remember, she was 13 years old. Well, as a side note, I want to mention that about a couple of weeks ago, I went back to the same bookstore and I found a biography on Catherine Ann Porter. And I discovered that consummate fiction writer that she was. <laughs> she had an aptitude of imagination that included escalating her own background into something quite grandiose. But she was descended, for example, from Daniel Boone and several presidents, all of which was, were not true. And so I would like to think that she exaggerated perhaps slightly about her early literary influences as well. Now I'm sure there really are writers who were sitting at the knee of Thomas Mann when they got their urge to write. In fact, someone told me this was the case with Susan Sontag. But in my case, I sat before a shelf in my home that contained Bibles. Bibles in ten different languages since my father was a Baptist minister. And below those, inspirational volumes such as J.C. Penney's Living the Golden Rule. And below those, textbooks, electrical engineering and medical textbooks, the best one being on medical anomalies, which my mother studied when she took night classes to become a licensed vocational nurse. And at the very bottom, the best books, a set of world book encyclopedias and donated copies of Reader's Digest condensed books. Of course, I also went to the library exactly once every two weeks, and there I would get my fill of books, all kinds of wonderful books by authors from around the world. And in fact, when I was struggling to answer that question at the Arts and Lecture Series in San Francisco about the 18th century writers who had most influenced my work, I recalled the early books I had borrowed from the library. And so this is what I told him. My 18th century writers... I guess they'd have to be Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> and it's true, people have told me that my work has a fairy tale like quality to it. Now, lest you think I'm a complete literary Philistine, I should mention that later in life I did become an English major. I actually switched when I was at Linfield College from pre med to English. And I, uh, although I actually graduated with a degree in linguistics. And during that time, when I was an English major, I read what was given on various English professors' A-list. Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton, Henry James, James Joyce, and E.M. Forster, Hawthorne, Hemingway, and Fitzgerald. And if memory serves me correctly, I believe I was assigned to read maybe two women authors. One was Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. And there was possibly one other, although maybe it was Evelyn Waugh, who I later discovered was a man. <laughs> And other than Kafka, 
the literature I read were all English or American literature, so I did not actually read Chekhov or Tolstoy until recently. I enjoyed being an English major, by the way. I'd always loved to read. For the most part, I was impressed by books that I read and then dissected as a college student into themes, leitmotifs, character, conflict, plot, and the biggie, symbolism. But, but I don't recall with any of those books that I read that I thought to myself, oh my God, this is it. I should write a novel. I could be a writer. More than anything, I think those books dissuaded me from becoming a novelist, at least for the next 15 years. At the time, I didn't think that I could write with the same kind of perception and authority that someone like Hemingway had. I mean, I couldn't imagine a Chinese girl hunting rhino in Africa or encouraging a mad bull to run her down in Pamplona. Yet I did harbor the secret desire to write almost all my life, to find words for the way that I saw the world and how I felt about it. And I kept it a secret because somehow I always convinced myself or was it persuaded myself, that I had nothing to say that would be of interest to anyone else. In my roundabout way, I'm telling you how I found my voice, the voice that would tell my stories, by remembering how I did not find it. At this point, let me backtrack a bit and tell you that I was not encouraged as a child to become a writer. On the contrary. There, was, there were those around me who thought that English was not my strong suit, I did moderately well in English, getting maybe Bs or B pluses, and scoring in the 60th or 70th percentile on IQ tests and achievement tests and things like that. But those scores were never good enough to override the opinion that my true abilities lay in math and science, because in those areas I achieved A's, and I had scored in the 90th percentile or higher. So early on it was determined for me that I should one day become a doctor and a concert pianist on this side. <laughs> Looking back, it occurs to me that in those days, educators really took those tests seriously, as if they really could predict and determine a child's natural abilities. And I suppose it was thought that a child predisposed to writing fiction would naturally loathe dangling a particle in thin air or sticking a press position in places in which it did not belong. And this skill for writing could be revealed on a standardized test. And the test would also reveal that the natural-born writer would have a vocabulary so refined and immense that she would know by dint of the muse within her that the verb to convince was not the same as the verb to persuade, as in her mother convinced her to practice the piano every day versus her mother persuaded her to practice the piano every day. And in any case, if this budding writer did not know which verb was correct, convince or persuade, persuade or convince, in any case, she would never, never substitute the phrase, her mother made her do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, or perhaps I was actually lucky that it happened this way, I did not grow up with the kind of English that attuned me to these fine distinctions in vocabulary and grammar. I grew up in a primarily English-speaking neighborhood, of course, but the language I heard at home was different. Mandarin Chinese, as well as English, but a different kind of English. And my father's English was actually quite good, although missing still in the fine points of grammar. And the other English I heard was my mother's, which by her own admission did not change much from what she learned at a Catholic girls' school in Shanghai. 
fact, my mother recently confessed to me that the nuns there prayed especially hard for her because she, she was lazy and not a very good student, and English was her worst subject. Well, so you'll have a better idea of what her English sounds like, what I heard at home. I'm going to quote what my mother said during a recent interview I did with her and, and then transcribe. During this conversation, my mother was talking about a political gangster in Shanghai who was actually quite famous in China back then. His name was Du Yosung, and he was head of the Green Gang. The gangster had the same last name as my mother's stepfather, Du. And she was telling me how the gangster in his early years wanted to be adopted by her family, which was rich by comparison. But then later, the gangster became more powerful and far richer than my mother's family, and one day showed up at my mother's wedding to pay his respects. And here's what she said in part during her story. Du Yu Sung having fruit business like fruit stand, like off the street kind. He is Du like Du Zong, but not Tuming Island people. The local people there call Putung. The river east side, he belonged that side people. That man want asked Du Zong father take him in like become own family. Du Zong father wasn't looked down on him, but didn't take seriously until that man big like become a mafia. Now important person, very hard to inviting him. Chinese way, come only to show respect. Don't stay for dinner. Respect for making big celebration, he shows up. Mean gives lots of respect. Chinese custom, Chinese social life that way. If too important won't stay too long, he come to my wedding. I didn't see, I heard it. I gone to boys' side. They have YMCA dinner. Chinese age, I was 19. Well, that was the English I grew up with, or should I say with which I grew up. Now, sociologists and linguists might tell you that the child's developing language skills are most influenced by peers, the friends that they make at school. But I do think the, the language spoken at home, especially in immigrant families, which are much more insular, plays a large role in shaping the language of the child. And I believe this is, was the case with me, and that if it affected my results on achievement tests, IQ tests, and the SAT. So I would do better in subjects like math rather than English. This is understandable. Math is precise. There's only one correct answer. Two plus two is blank. And the answer is always four, not sometimes four, sometimes five. Whereas for me, at least, the answers on verbal tests were always a judgment call, a matter of opinion and personal experience. Those tests were constructed around items like fill-in-the-blank sentence completion, such as even though Tom was blank, Mary thought he was blank. And the correct answer was supposed to be the most bland combination of thoughts. For example, even though Tom was shy, Mary thought he was charming. With the grammatical structure, even though limiting the correct answer to some sort of semantic contrast. So you would never get answers like, even though Tom was foolish, Mary thought he was ridiculous. Well, according to my mother, there were few limitations as to what Tom could have been and what Mary might have thought of him. And I heard them all. So I never did well on tests like that. In spite of this, I did become a writer. In 1983, when my former boss told me in no uncertain terms that writing was my worst skill and that I should hone my talents toward account management instead, I quit my job and became a freelance writer. 
You see, those achievement tests never did measure rebelliousness. This tendency to question assumptions, which I happen to think is a God-given trait of most writers. So I started to make my living writing about things I knew nothing about. And you might say it was good practice for becoming a fiction writer to sort of make it up as you go along. I wrote sales manuals for AT&T. How to sell more Reach Out America phone plans. How many of you have that Reach Out America phone plan? I guess it, my writing wasn't so good back then. Anyway, I, I also wrote Dial of Horoscopes for the Love Lorn. I wrote executive speeches, video scripts on corporate culture, trade magazine articles on standards and professional ethics and certified public accounting. And I ghost wrote a book for IBM called Telecommunications and You. <laughs> Snappy title, which enjoyed a 70,000 copy first printing which I later learned is about the same size first printing for most fiction books that reached the bestseller list. I heard that book actually is still in print today. So you see, The Joy Luck Club was not really my first big book. <laughs> but to me, this kind of writing, this business writing, was not the writing I really wanted to do. I had the secret desire to write for myself, and not according to some company's marketing plans for the next year. So in 1985, after that psychiatrist fell asleep on me, I began to write fiction. At the time, I just started to read literary fiction again. I read short stories by Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, Alice Adams, Laurie Moore, Amy Hempel, Kay Gibbons, Ellen Gilchrist. I read novels by Alice Walker, Louise Erdrich, Isabella Allende, Harriet Dorr. Well, as you may have noticed, so far I've mentioned only women. Because once I discovered that books were being written by women, many women, I developed an insatiable hunger for them. Virginia Woolf's hope, it seemed to me, that a woman would have a room of her own was coming true. But to be fair, I also read a few books by men, Garcia Marquez, David Levitt, Raymond Carver. When I first tried my hand at fiction, I did what I suppose most beginning fiction writers do. And that is I tried to imitate the writing styles of those I admired. And so I would write my stories with lovely landscapes and an immediate situation which Alice Adams always seemed to do so successfully. And I also put thoughts in parentheses as she also did. I thought that was very clever, but in my case it didn't work. Next, I went for those women writers whose voices had a certain air of New York angst and sophistication to them. And they would always be dwelling incessantly on things like traffic jam and broken nails and horrors of being stuck on a bridge during an earthquake, that sort of thing. And those efforts were also pretty awful. I tried to write in a clever genre, a fast-talking super-hit and cynical detective of the future. I also wrote in the voice of a man discovering his best friend had been murdered all those efforts were terrible. I tried to write in what I called the New Yorker style, in which the story opens up in the middle of a conversation in someone's sun porch in the Hamptons <laughs> and ends at exactly the same place with no better ideas to what the conversation was really about. And now that I've said this in public, I'll probably never be published by the New Yorker. I wrote stories in which the protagonist was a girl or a young woman with a Germanic-sounding name, whose parents had an Ivy League education and belonged to country clubs and went to supper clubs, who owned golf clubs, who knew the true meaning of the club sandwich, 
It was, believe me, not the Joy Luck Club. In the end, all these efforts seemed false. I didn't know why. After all, I thought, wasn't fiction a story that was made up? The details pulled from the world at large or from those you assumed might be your future readers? In all those early efforts, you see, I didn't try to write about anything that could be related to my own life. That is, there were no characters who were Chinese or Chinese-American. I thought that if I did that, write about Chinese-Americans, it would be too obvious, too much of a cliché. And secretly, I thought I was writing with the goal that someday I would be published in a magazine somewhere. And everyone knew that apart from Maxine Hong Kingston's books, nobody wanted to read a story about Chinese people, let alone Chinese mothers. Well, after my second rejection from The New Yorker, which I thumbtacked to the wall next to my computer, I decided that perhaps I should learn something more about writing fiction. Perhaps I should write just for myself for a while. And not with the idea of publication. I should learn what a story really is, what point of view means, how it affects the details you put into the story. Now, around this time, two things happen. Coincidences that, in retrospect, make me think that they really were destiny waving its red flag, saying, here you are, pay attention. First, I received a flyer announcing an annual writers' conference at Squaw Valley. Now, I had never sent away for this flyer, so I think they got my name from a list of writers whose stories had been rejected by different magazines. <laughs> anyway, I, I looked at the flyer, and I recognized a few of the names on the staff. Elizabeth Talent, Molly Giles, whose work I just read in an anthology called Editor's Choice. But to apply, it said you had to send in a manuscript. So I put the application away. A little while later, I was at the supermarket, standing at the checkout, and I saw an issue of Life magazine. In it was a story about a Chinese chess prodigy, or rather two of them, a boy and a girl, around the ages six and eight. I wondered what it was like to be a chess prodigy, and then it hit me. This was a possible storyline I could write about, a chess prodigy, which would be fiction because I wasn't a prodigy, and I didn't play chess. I hated the game. And as I started to write this story, I made one concession to real life. I kept the Chinese girl. So I wrote that story about the Chinese girl, which encompassed her life from ages 5 through 37, her life as a prodigy, her life with her mother and her husband, all in 13 pages. I sent it to the writers' conference, and I was accepted. I went to the conference where my story was read by these two respected writers, and then guess what happened? Now, this is the part, by the way, where it gets reported in all these writers' workshops around the country, so I hear from members of my own writing group. Only it usually goes like this. This Chinese-American woman in San Francisco, having never written a word in her life, sat down one day, wrote a story for a writers' conference, and the next thing she knew, she was on the bestseller list. And before that, she hadn't written a single word. Well, that's not true. You already know that I wrote as a professional business writer, and here's what really happened at Squaw Valley. I went to the writers' conference, that's true. My manuscript was critiqued in one of the sessions, just like everyone else's, and that's true. And then it was trashed. That is to say, I was told my story was not a story, that it had many problems. The curious thing to me was that those who critiqued it, writers Elizabeth Talent and Molly Giles, kept pointing to the Chinese stuff as new and interesting. 
and they suggested I cut out all the sentences I had worked the hardest on. Those were the sentences I thought that were going to finally prove to, that those standardized tests had been wrong, that my, my vocabulary had improved over the years. I remember one sentence in particular, one, one that I was told by Molly to cut. It went like this. That was my quandary in its nascent state. <laughs> would, you, would you have bought the Joy Luck Club if all the pages were filled with sentences like that? Molly Giles was especially harsh. She, she red-marked my manuscript, circling the beginnings of what she called a dozen half-starts at, at stories. And she checked where she thought the voice was true and honest, all the stuff it seemed the mother said. She crossed out the fancy sentences, the sort of hoity-toity phrases that the daughter said, telling me in quite frank terms that this was where the voice was authorly, meaning self-conscious, dishonest, inconsistent. Well, of course, I was embarrassed to hear these things, but rather than being completely dejected, I was actually becoming quite excited because I had gone to this conference hoping to find a few answers to simple questions. What makes for a good story? What is the right structure for a short story? And instead of finding those answers, I came away with better questions. What is voice? What is the truth in fiction? Now, I've already told you that my father was a Baptist minister. Well, it was as though I had found my religion. I felt that if I could find the answers to these questions, what is voice, what is story, which comes first and why, and what is the truth in fiction, I would have interesting work for a lifetime. And that it would be enough, that is, it would be enough to make up for not being published. Well, I returned home, and that week I wrote a new version of the story, and the second version was also pretty awful. But I discovered something interesting for myself in writing it. No matter how much I tried to make it a story about chess, it kept turning into a story about a girl and her mother. And even though the major details of the story were fictional, that is, I never lived in Chinatown and I didn't play chess, it was as though this was a story about me, about my feelings, and the ambiguity of those painful feelings. Those were mine, long buried and now discovered in fiction. That's what creative writing teachers call the shock of recognition. And when it happens in your own writing, it's, it's just like all those cliches in the movies. Bells go off and the music soars and the wind rushes through your ears. It's a sudden high and it's, it's absolutely addicting. Well, that was the beginning of thinking about this question of voice. And I continue to find the answers to that question and all its permutations by rewriting the false start beginnings found in that first story I sent into Squaw Valley. And I decided to write those stories for myself and later for my mother, remaining true to the feelings I was discovering, or at least trying to, that is trying not to think about what I needed to write in order to get published, because then I would be writing to different expectations for different reasons with a self-conscious voice. And I won't tell you what happened after that, how I was discovered and published, because that's been reported in countless magazine articles. Instead, I, I would like to spend the rest of my time tonight talking about what I discovered about my voice. And I hope you'll see that a writer's voice is not simply style that can be imitated. It is not a genre. The writer's voice is the reason why she has to write, why those particular stories need to be told, why they need to be told in a particular way. 
I do think that I was marked to become a writer, destined to be one from an early age, by the mother and the father that I was born to and with the life that was given to me. I think this is true for most writers, as well as for readers, those who love immersing themselves in a different world. So perhaps you can go through this summary with me, what I think made me a writer, and see if the same is true for you. In part, you grow up thinking you are destined somehow because you are different somehow. And I don't mean different as in special like thinking you're the reincarnation of the dowager empress or that Shakespeare's sister is whispering in your ear. I mean different in the sense that you think you see and hear things differently and nobody else seems to notice, or at least they don't show it. So you record these little differences in your mind and keep them to yourself. You learn to question the life given to you. You ask questions everybody seems to think is silly or weird or unspeakable. I also think that many writers are marked by a strong sense of memory. And memory is not just what writers happen to remember. It's not just the good stuff. It's not just remembering that you got a kitten for your 10th birthday or being able to memorize a piece out of Schumann's scenes from childhood on the piano. It's recalling, reconstructing, reliving whole emotional experiences. How much that cat trusted you just before the vet had to put her to sleep. How panicked you became when you forgot the last line at the piano recital and how hopeful you were that no one would notice the ending crash landed on a different key. I think the writer-to-be indulges in these memories as if they were a toy or a tool or a form of self-torture. And many writers I know have the kind of memory that doesn't allow them to forget. Or perhaps the fact that they can't forget becomes the reason why they have to write. Or perhaps they think they remember things that never really happened and are only out of their imagination and they want to write about those made-up experiences to prove that they actually happened. Whatever the case, my memories go back to a time when I was not even two years old. Perhaps there are some psychologists out there tonight who would say, well, that's impossible. You can't have retrievable memories before you have language with which to store and categorize these memories. Well, my memories often have to do with a sense of things or my trying to make sense of things. For example, that year when I was not quite two, we lived in a small parish house that had a fenced-in yard with one fruit tree. This was in Fresno, and my father served as minister of the First Chinese Baptist Church there. At that time, my immediate world consisted of my older brother, Peter, and my parents, who had immigrated to this country in 1949, two and a half years before I was born. My brother, Peter, dropped a piece of fruit from that tree onto my head that one summer we lived there, which is why I remember that time in Fresno. And I remembered I cried out loud and hard, and I had no words to express how angry I was. And then I stopped, because I was now busy examining this thing that had dropped onto my head, which was rosy-colored and fuzzy and covered my whole palm when I held it. When I was older, I told my mother about this memory, and she said, but we had no peach tree. And I thought, how can that be? It is so vivid in my mind. And, and then she searched her memory, and she said, it was an apricot tree. And that made sense because an apricot would have fit into my two-year-old hand the same way a peach would have fit into an adult hand and I would have remembered it that way, not by a name, but by how it felt, how I tried to make sense of it. 
Anyway, this memory caused me to remember more about that time. A small apricot is remembered as a peach. A small community is remembered as the entire world. And I remember that my entire world was Chinese. My parents and all the parishioners from the First Chinese Baptist Church who gave me gifts and spoke to me in different Chinese dialects. At that age, I thought language was magic. And that language was Chinese, guoyu, which is common Mandarin. My mother would make lights go off by simply saying guandong. She named foods, niu nai, pinguo, fan, and milk, apples, and bowls of rice would appear. She said she could see me even if I was not in the same room. And she was always right. My mother's words created a world for me which was governed by her kind of Chinese magic and logic. When I was three, we moved to Oakland. And I remember my brother and I went into the toy department at Sears Roebuck at Christmas time. And when I asked to see the hochas, the sales clerk looked at me and said, hochas, we have no such thing as hochas. And I said, hochas, hochas, how can a sales clerk be so stupid? And we, my brother and I, we went and found these hochas. And the sales clerk said to us, oh, what you want are choo-choo trains. And that's when I started to think that other words, other than Chinese, contained a different kind of magic, maybe a better kind. My world began to change as my language and my mother's language changed. I stopped speaking Chinese. My mother began to speak to me in only in broken English, and she began to lose her magical powers over me. By the time I was six, as I remember it, I believed I was an American girl trapped in a Chinese body. I had a sense that I was supposed to have been born into an American family, and only I knew about this mistake. I believed my view of the world was somehow different from my parents, as well as those of my peers. I had secret thoughts I could not talk about with anyone else. For example, when I was about five or six, I used to stare at my leg, or rather the calf of my leg. I had recently realized that I was Chinese, and that this was different somehow from plain old American. And I looked at this leg or this calf and I wondered if my, it looked different from other people's who were not Chinese. I wasn't thinking of genetics or anything like that, of course. I was thinking about this very basic question of what made one look Chinese and not plain old American. I wondered if eating more American food would make this leg grow up looking more American. It was a very curious thought as a child, but this is cultural identity in its early stages. Around that same time, a classmate made fun of me for mispronouncing the word milk, which I pronounced as murk. I was told I had a Chinese tongue, and I couldn't twist it the right way to speak English the right way. So when I was by myself, I practiced saying milk, milk, milk over and over again. And I remember one day thinking that no matter how hard I tried, I would never get rid of all my Chineseness unless I changed my face. After all, I still had this nose. So for several nights, I slept with a clothespin on my nose, which was a very, very painful thing to do. And I've heard since that I was not the only Chinese-American girl to do that. So you can see, I had an unhappy and confused childhood which people today tell me was fortunate, since a tortured childhood is great training for a fiction writer. <laughs> During that time, I also knew practically nothing about China. 
for example, I didn't know that China had been through a world war. I mean, to me, World War II took place, started with Pearl Harbor and took place in Europe and maybe a little bit in the Philippines. I did not know that China had been through a civil war. I did not know of my mother or father's life in China. I did know that we had Chinese relatives and also that some of them lived in a place that was called Formosa. But I felt nothing toward them except resentment. Those unseen relatives were the reasons why I couldn't get a new pair of skates. All my family's extra money and even my favorite doll were sent to these relatives who supposedly had so much less than we had. When I said that my mother did not talk about her life in China, I actually mean that I don't remember this. But my mother told me when I was older that she had tried when I was younger. She said that one day when I was about 10 years old, she took me and my brothers aside, called us in from outside where we were playing, and showed us these little photographs. She told us that she had another family in China, three daughters from a terrible first marriage, little girls whom she was forced to leave behind in 1949. And she said that because of the situation in China, meaning communism, she thought she would never see these daughters again. But now she and my father had received a letter. My mother said that when she told me this, I'd looked at her with a blank face. And she sort of panicked. Because here she had just confessed to me and my brothers that she had this other family, that she'd been married before to another man, which was rather scandalous for the wife of a Baptist minister. And she saw my confused eyes and asked me if I had any questions. And I did. I nodded and I said, is that all? Can we go out and play now? Now this is the way I remembered how I learned about her life in China, and perhaps this really isn't how it happened, but this is the way that I remember it emotionally. It was a few years later when I was 15, and my mother and I were having an argument, a shouting match. I was declaring how much I hated my life. I wished I had been born into another family. I wished I were dead. I wished my mother was not my mother. And suddenly my mother began telling me about her regrets, that she had ever come to this country, that perhaps she should return to China. She began talking about her daughters in China, and, and because we were having this terrible fight and I had said such terrible things, I suddenly became scared. I was imagining these other daughters as well-behaved, and they would have spoken perfect Chinese, and they would have been happy to obey my mother if she'd been around to order them. I was afraid that my mother regretted that she ever had me, her American-born, disrespectful daughter. Well, that was the year that my father and brother were both diagnosed as having brain tumors a few months apart. There's like a one in a ten million chance of it happening in the same family at the same time. My mother, little brother, and I spent a year watching my brother Peter and then my father die. That was the year my mother's Chinese side came out in full force. She tried everything to save my father and brother from dying. While she continued to pray for miracles in the Western Christian fashion, she also called in a Chinese geomancer to see if our house was pulling in too many bad influences. She prayed to a painting of my grandmother, asking what we had done wrong to deserve such bad fate. And after they died, she would bring Chinese dumplings and incense to the cemetery. She hoped they would enjoy this food on the other side. Meanwhile, as a result of this tragedy, 
I did not transform into a more dutiful daughter as my mother had expected. I became an angry teenager in full rebellion mode. I had gone through a year's worth of waiting and hope, then losing hope, while my mother stubbornly clung to some mysterious faith that she could save them yet just by trying. After my father and brother died, my mother seemed to become more adamant about steering me down some path to which only she seemed to know the directions and the danger points. She told me about the horrors that awaited me if I let a boy kiss me, how later I would be abandoned after I had a baby and I would be leftovers. She said I shouldn't be loud and noisy like my American friends. She likened this kind of behavior to the passing of wind. The loud ones, she said, are only noisy and it's the silent ones that are potent. <laughs> I use this expression, by the way, in a story called The Rules of the Game, <laughs> only I cleaned it up a bit and made the wind the kind that blows through trees. <laughs> she used to lament that I filled my head with so many ridiculous things that it was too full to put anything worthwhile inside. She said if I didn't finish the bottom of my bowl of rice or the rest of my milk, which she pronounced murk, I would be throwing all my blessings away. Well, of course, I didn't believe a word she said. Well, six months after my father died, my mother cashed in her insurance money and her Joy Luck Club portfolio, and there really was a Joy Luck Club, and took my younger brother and me to Europe to prove we weren't stuck with a life given to us, with the fate that was given to us. And there we attended high school in Montreux, Switzerland, outsiders among the sons and daughters of ambassadors and wealthy industrialists, oil barons, and Persian royalty. This, in the Condensed Reader's Digest version, is the kind of life that was given to me. That was the kind of life that gave me my writing voice. Of course, all this didn't give me a reason to write, for going back and discovering my life and my voice. I did not find that reason, actually, until I began to rewrite that story about the chess prodigy, the story that kept becoming a story about a girl and her mother. Let me tell you what happened. This was in 1986. This was a time when I had already put myself through college on minority grants and fellowships. I had spent five years working with disabled children, serving on practically every county board of directors as the representative of multicultural needs. And now I was a business writer. I had been married for a dozen years or so to a nice man, a tax attorney, who, by the way, asked me to inform you he is nothing like any of the worthless men in my book. <laughs> he was the one who asked me not to write about him, so I keep telling him it's his fault that people think he's one of those men. Anyway, having become my own person, having become Chinese from a multicultural perspective of political correctness, I seldom had arguments with my mother, mostly because I now knew what subjects to avoid or to simply ignore her remarks that whatever I did never seemed to be enough. But in 1986, my mother turned 70 and she said to me, I'm getting old now. If I die, what would you remember? And I thought to myself, here we go again, a morbid question. And I said, you're not going to die. Besides, I'd remember all kinds of things about you. I'd remember, I mean, you're my mother. And she said, rather matter-of-factly, I think you know little percent of me. Her answer made me realize how much she knew about me. She was right. I didn't know much about her. 
Well, shortly after that, when I was on vacation, I got an urgent phone message four days late from my younger brother, John. He said our mother was in intensive care, hospitalized for a heart attack. And as I was about to call the hospital, I was so afraid that I had lost her and all the things she had wanted to tell me. What were her dreams as a child, as a young woman, as a mother? What gave her the greatest joys in life? Was she disappointed that I was not her other daughters? What did she want me to remember? As I headed for the payphone, I made a bargain with the powers that be. God, Buddha, it didn't matter, whoever was listening. I said, if my mother lives, I will take her to China. I will see my sisters. I will try to get to know everything about her. Well, the powers that be must exist. Because when I reached her by phone, there she was laughing and telling me it was not a heart attack. She had had a fight with a fishmonger who had been rude to her, and he made her so mad it drove her straight to the hospital. <laughs> well, I made this promise. I took my mother to China, I saw my sisters for the first time, and I began spending many wonderful hours just talking to my mother, watching the way she picked foods and got into arguments with the fishmongers, listening to her scold me for paying too much for toilet paper. She can always get toilet paper, 99 cents for four rolls. I don't, I don't know how. I watched the way she cooked special dishes I loved as a child. I listened when she explained the difference between true friends, loyal friends, and those who are eat meat, drink wine friends, people who come only when times are good. I asked her why she had spoiled my younger brother John, but had been so strict with me. Spoiled, she exclaimed. We didn't love him enough, not like you. She said she'd put so many hopes in me, guiding me to the best opportunities, developing the best character. If she didn't do this, who else would? Who else would care that much? All those years I had been waiting for her to tell me she loved me, to hug me the same way my friend's American parents did. And now I realized the emotional language had been there all along. It was in a different language, a different culture, a different voice. And I had misunderstood her, interpreted her intentions into the worst of meanings. So now I was listening, truly listening, to her stories about her mother, my grandmother, who committed suicide in 1926 after she was raped and was forced to become the third concubine to a rich man. She said her mother had tried to teach her how not to suffer, but my mother did not learn that lesson well, so she was trying to teach me better. And I asked her why she'd given me the Chinese name Unmei. You would have thought that I would have asked that question a whole lot sooner, but I didn't. And she said, An was from Andi, blessing, and Mei was from Mei Guo, America. I was her blessing from America. For the first time since I was a little girl, I started to speak Chinese again with my mother, horribly fractured Chinese, and all the magic of her words came back. That's where the voice comes from, from the voices of my childhood, some passionate, some insistent, some that made no sense. It was also my voice trying to shout them down, questioning them at every turn. Why? Why not? And when I write, I hear those voices again, and the stories behind the warnings, the admonitions, the plates of Chinese food representing unspoken love. When I write 
with those voices, I discover something new every day that makes me feel alive, as if I'm finally beginning to make sense of the world. I think you know what I mean because you probably get that same feeling when you read. When you read a book that captures both your imagination and your heart. And when I'm writing at my best, it feels the same as I think how you people read. I don't know what's going to happen until I read it sentence by sentence, as the story unfolds for me, full of surprises, more questions popping up, more answers. And then I find myself at the surprising point, which is at the end. And at that point, the story is still flawed, full of bad writing, and I know I'll have to do a lot of polishing. But I've made it over the most important hurdle, an emotional point which leaves me breathless or crying, laughing or shouting, because it's as if I'd gone through exactly what I had just written. I was in that world, and I lived to tell about it. That's the writer's voice. That's the best part, and that's the part a writer hopes to give to the reader. Thank you for listening. Thank you. That was Amy Tan from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1991. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Literary Arts is a partner of Pop Up Magazine, an unforgettable live multimedia storytelling experience happening at Revolution Hall, June 4th. To learn more about their Portland visit, go to popupmagazine.com. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>